Welcome to episode 4 of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Bongani Kona and in this episode we ask, what remains of the political and cultural ideas that imagined Africa as the utopia of a borderless world? We reflect with Kukwa Manfo on the place of minor histories in deepening our understanding of movement and mobility across borders. On a very kind of personal, almost instinctive level, looking at official archives, colonial archives, I've never really thought of them as for me or of me. When I say me, I mean like me, people like me in the context of Ghana. We travel with Emmanuel Iduma through cities untethered to their countries in search of an atlas of a borderless world. In the first response I received, I was urged to recount stories of strange sightings, emotions and encounters, remembered or imagined. Take me with you on your journeys, my relative replied. Let me go in your place. We take flight with Sarah Salem as we ponder personal and political histories of air travel and the possibilities of imagining anti-colonial network making from the vantage point of the sky. When we think of the railways and how they were built across Africa, we see that they were carefully constructed on the edges of the continent, built for one purpose, the extraction of resources. The first voice you'll hear from is that of Ghanaian architect and scholar, Kokwa Manfo. She reflects on archival encounters, from the banal to the everyday, and argues that minor and marginal histories point to everyday Pan-Africanisms, which exist beyond utopian imaginaries. What really thrills me are those like random chance little notes, like these passing mentions of a thing that's not even the main subject of the document, something in the background of a photo, or just unfiltered, frank, and often unofficial accounts of people and places and spaces. I spend lots of time just looking at pictures of random things, as long as it's in the location I'm interested in. Just for that, like, passing one image where you see a side of a thing and then it leads you on this, what I think is a wonderful journey of discovery. So, yeah, where are they found? It's really everywhere. I don't know an archive that I will refuse to enter. Because even in official documents, so I'm currently digitizing a city um, administration archive, which consists of building a permit application sort of documents and, and drawings. And even those, though these are official archives with spaces for everything and their forms, there are these little chits, communication between plaques these little notes in the margins or on the drawings of people putting something not personal, but like not exactly official as well. Kukwa speaks to us about how many of the archives she works with imagine different connections across the continent and suggest ways of thinking about Pan-Africanism that sidestep the grand utopian visions of statesmen and the nostalgia for a pre-colonial past. First about like utopia in this context, context that comes up in these writings and speeches and interviews of of Pan-Africanists or people very much in this Pan-African moment. Yes, of the the 40s and 50s and 60s, but even before that, with the African-American Pan-Africanists who would maybe wouldn't term themselves Pan-Africanists, but it's really some of the same strands. 
I identify two kinds of ideas of utopia and utopia in the sense of these perfect imagined communities, nations or spaces where everything was good and happy and and dandy. Um, so there's these kind of like two ways in which it, it comes up. So there's the the past utopia, African utopia, where people either lived really simple lives, content and happy with their few needs and their few desires. But also there were these grand kings who these people happily served. And this is like a very kind of strong idea of utopia in this Africa context. Well, now it's past, but I sometimes call it like a, a future of the past idea of utopia, which is strong in people like Nkrumah and Nyerere, where they're thinking of these modern African nations, um, which are as modern as anywhere in the world, but sort of have some innate true African values. So for Nyerere, this comes in his villagization project. So he's very wedded to this idea of when we're in these, and, and here you see the first strand of the first utopia comes, right? So like when we used to live like this, everything was okay. So he tries to replicate this in, in this modern context. We know, of course, it doesn't really work. And Nkrumah is, is, not, is not quite the same. He doesn't have a as much nostalgia for that kind of life. And I, I think that's because he actually lived that kind of life. But he has a different thing. Like he has this kind of like, again, imagined idea of what things were before colonization and what things could be before colonization. And then he's thinking again of this modern Ghana where he can almost remake society according to what he thinks people should be doing. But these are the kind of two, this future of the past strand and this like past romantic ideal past um, ideas. So in reading some of these histories and stories of people thinking and writing, but also doing, because some of these people are presidents, they're planning ministers, they have actual power in their African countries. It's clear that people are talking and have talked and share some of these visions. Um, Recently, I was reading these documents that are called the Ponty Papers. They are written by students of the Ecole William Ponty in what is now Senegal. And at that time, they were drawn from all across West Africa that was colonized by France. And they were given a sort of anthropology kind of assignments where they had to go and basically write ethnographies of where they lived and where they came from. So there's like cohorts of people that have sort of shared cultural ideas of what they can be and what they are. And I I say imagine not to say that they're not real or none of this was happening. But I think there's a kind of group imagining that happens when you're away from home and you're with other people and you're faced with overwhelming state power, colonial power, racism. I think there's this there's this tendency to romanticize things about your past sometimes. I've been trying to go through the cabinet ministers of, of some of these first French republics. How many of them are from which schools? Even trying to see who married who. 
and who's from where, like seeing the same surnames in, in Ghana and in Nigeria and in Gambia. Um, so, so this is what I, I'm talking about, like these kind of connections that exist. And people have identified this and talked about this in different ways. There's a lot of attention on these sorts of like diasporic um, Pan-African, but either stemming from sometimes from France, but more often from America. But like these connections, which are really real and it's it's true and it's happening. But then you go to Liberia and then you meet people who have fancy names. So I was in Monrovia ooh, two years ago and then I met someone called Kukwa. And her father was a Fanti person from the same region that my father comes from. And um, following that story further, for ages and ages, the West African coast, there's been people that have been moving casually. Like they go on, they go in their canoes or their ships and they don't really know borders and they never knew borders in the way that there are borders now. And even now, like it's, it's harder now, but they still do it. Like I, I thought it was, it was in the past, but when I was in, on field work in November in the Volta region of Ghana, I was talking to someone and he was like, oh yeah, it still happens. It's a bit difficult now with all these like big fishing boats and the Chinese trawlers and stuff, but there's people that have multiple families on, on different coasts of West Africa. So I'm not convinced by both ideas of this Pan-African utopia, like the first idyllic past where everything was nice, because that's not true. If there are kings, then there are going to be slaves. That's just life. And also this modernist future, this future of the past, this modernist past as well, doesn't really work. One example is in, in Kuma's uh, in Krumah's Ponzet planning of this city in Ghana, Tema, they have housing for young professionals, which they make these small houses because in their head is going to be a man and his wife and two children. But that's not how people live. If you've made it out of your village and you've come to Accra and you've gotten a good job, you have siblings who will come and stay with you. That's just how people live. So you go there now and Every house has some extension, something added on, and because that's how people live, and they'll always make the the building in the way that they need for it to to work. Um, so again, so this idea of this utopia doesn't work. But looking at like these connections that have always existed at a non either non royal or non perfect past level, like these connections, it's almost as if imposing these grand ideas of borderlessness. Or, or going along these grand ideas of borderlessness ignores these existing ground level, almost constant actual actions of borderlessness. But let's say for the mainstream, this part of our independence history is not, Ghana's independence history is not talked about. But the, the Volta region of Ghana used to be part of of. Um, what they call the Transvolta Togoland. And it was uh, kind of split by the French and the British after the World War when all the German colonies were taken from them. I mean, originally they were taken from the Africans there, but like when, when, when they shared Germany's colonial assets. And the Ever Kingdom was spread across parts of this region. 
and into what was the Gold Coast at the time. And they had been trying to unify. And this, they always had sort of, of, of kinships and, and shared histories and would always have delegations at important events in the past, in the pre-colonial past. But they were never really a sort of unified kingdom in the way that, say, the Asante kingdom became. And it seemed from some of the the readings of histories written by other historians that this was not a pressing need for them. But in the advent of colonialism and, and conquest, they realized they probably had to unify to be a more formidable force. And they tried hard to unify. But yeah, first under the split under German occupation to become German Togoland and then some of them being on the Gold Coast and then later further splitting into French Togo and uh, British Togoland. The cusp of Ghana being uh, finally um, granted independence, they they held a referendum to, to ask if this Togoland region wanted to join the Gold Coast, which was to become Ghana, wanted to stay as a protectorate and that's like an impossible choice like stay colonial or get a chance of freedom so and it was a it was yeah it was a very close election I think it was about overall it's about 56 percent voted in favor of joining Ghana but if you look at the breakdown of that voting what parts of the area voted you can see that a lot of people in the ever speaking areas did not want to to join. They wanted to try and and reunify. So it is, and um, just around independence, there were curfews, there was military presence, people were shot, people were imprisoned because they did not want to be part. They fought against it. But it's interesting knowing Nkrumah's history and Pan-Africanist histories and thoughts and seeing that he um, accepted British military help to keep these people in a union that they didn't did not want to be part of. Yeah, a lot of these early Pan-Africanist leaders held very strongly, um, on very strongly to colonial borders. And they had to, because you can't be president of no nation. You have to seize a nation first. Looking at official archives, colonial archives, I've never really thought of them as for me or of me. When I say me, I mean like me, people like me in the context of Ghana. Um, if if ordinary people would enter these archives in any significant way, then they were like somehow in the service of 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 kings or colonial administrators or were becoming colonial administrators in the first place. So by by the structure, by the very structure and nature of, of, of these archives, they are meant to record things of significance to a very specific group of people, which is, is not to say that they are of no use, but one has to be realistic about what they are. The, the archive is, is one of several starting points for me. Um, another account, um, another angle in an account. All archives have silences by design. 
because you simply cannot record the minutia of everything every day. Here are examples of colonial building archives read by Simukai Chigudu and Nana Ama Ageman Asante. Town Engineers Department, Municipal Officers, Accra, 2nd September 1952. Madam, your application of 21st August 1952 for a certificate of habitation for your uncompleted house at Quarmine Road, Coral Gono refers. I have to inform you that the validity of your building permit number 52 1933 had expired since 31st March 1935 and it cannot be renewed. You are therefore requested to submit a new application for a building permit for the complete of your building to this office for consideration. Plot number 12, Fulani section, Adabraka, 15th February 1926. Sir, I have the honor to inform you that the 12 months extension given to me to complete my building at Adabraka with permit number 249 has expired and I ask for extension of time to enable me to complete the building. So there's first the original record, which is done in that moment, in that present, and using my building application archives. At that time, there's a form and the specific information we want your name, where you live, what you're doing, and nothing else about you. So that's already, we don't have some information. And then what's, what gets filed? So how about the people who did not complete the process? Maybe things got missing. What was decided to be put in these files and kept in this room? It's also a deliberate choice by someone. Um so all archives, like I said, all archives will have silences anyway. Um, but it's um, how you approach it, which I call the frame. Um, again, always not looking for truth, but telling an, an account using tools in a way that can be replicated by someone else going to the archive. But even that person will have a different positionality from you. But the way you frame it or your frame of the archive also helps you notice that there's a silence. This idea of the past always reappearing and the past that is not past kept coming into my mind in light of the NSAS process, but also the responses from outside Nigeria by other Africans. And I don't think people are being deliberately ahistorical, but this also speaks to the idea of what is recorded. So beyond archives, what, what history is deemed worthy of of being taught and being recorded and revisited. In the Ghanaian independence movement, it often starts with the riots, what they call riots, but there was a protest in 1948 where ex-servicemen, soldiers who fought in the World War for the British were protesting their conditions of service and remuneration. They were demanding better treatment and better pay. And three of them were shot, so were killed um, during this protest. And it sparked a, a wave of other protests and other things. This is how the story, the history is told and accumulated in independence um, led by Nkrumah. And you read that and you think that there's these big protests and there's independence. 
but all that happens in between and before is lost. I've come across like other smaller protests. Well, maybe not smaller, but not as recorded protests. So before this, earlier in the 1940s, there's a protest by farmers in Mampo. There's a protest by students in, in colonial schools. There's so many stories of insurrection, little little stories. Little in the sense that there's not a lot of information. They don't capture as much imagination of historians and writers. But if you look at it this way, then you don't see these struggles for, for independence as a series of big things and then the big results. You see it as a, 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 a slow, painful grind over a very long time. And when you read these stories of protests and histories of protests as that, you don't get demoralized by not getting all your demands at the end of one big protest. It's, it's, it's things like this over a long period of time that actually ends up in any great result. Kukwa Manfo's current research examines nation-building and notions of citizenship through the architecture of West African secondary schools constructed between 1945 and 1965. Emmanuel Iduma, a lone traveler, draws us into a world of strangers, impressions, and brief encounters. We travel with them from Mauritania to Ethiopia, through cities untethered to states, and across multilingual rivers in search of an atlas of a borderless world. On impulse, before anything else, in a white E350 Ford van, I drive into Mauritania at sunset. I see a dune land and then houses built as if to imitate matchboxes. Today, the Edo Fitara begins. Men are walking back from mosques, women and children trailing them, sure-footed and celebratory. I see all these with my nose pressed to the window. The men wear long, loose-fitting garments, mostly white, sometimes light blue. I watch them from behind and think of the word swashbuckle. I am moved by the swaggering bodies dressed in their finest, walking to houses that look only seven feet high. I envy the ardor in their gates, a lack of hurry, as if by walking they possess a piece of the earth. I want to be this man. I wake all in a dream, faces and images and gestures from my travels return to me in great detail. Sometimes it is the wind sputtering against the window of the car I am in, or an underfed dog rummaging through rubbish for a glinting bone, or a boat unmanned in the middle of a river seen from afar. I began to exchange emails with a relative who requested anonymity. My first email was a list of all the towns I had slept in during my travels, at least for a night. Towns in which I turned in my sleep, unsure of where I was, whether I was bathed in sweat or in tears, or if I lay beside a lover or a travel companion. I hoped, I wrote, 
that the cities appeared unfettered to their countries, an atlas of a borderless world. In the first response I received, I was urged to recount stories of strange sightings, emotions, and encounters, remembered or imagined. Take me with you on your journeys, my relative replied. Let me go in your place. For days, depending on the availability of Mamadou, I had no guide in the car. It amuses me now that I remember how I walked in point on, nervous of what world was possible without English words. My French and Wolof constituted no more than a sentence when combined. Once overlooking the sea in Ungor, my eyes followed the path the surfers made as they performed their stunts. I see what rivers the Nile in its stretch beyond the Mediterranean, the Niger as it joins Timbuktu to Lokoja, teach with their flowing mass. Wave falls on wave as one dialect inflects on another. All rivers are multilingual. I was nothing without the translators to whom my questions were entrusted, whether in Bamako, or Abidjan, or Casablanca. But alone, as was often the case, I wondered how to survive without them. On the night I arrive in Benin City, I sit in a taxi. I am calmed by the driver's chattiness. He describes the city's quarters as we drive along. We are headed towards the GRA and we drive past the hotel. It is lit with the floodlights, famous at night for men looking for sex. In front of the hotel, there are taxis waiting. Even with a brief glance at the taxi drivers who loiter to pick up other men, I see that each is prepared for a long stay into the night. Perhaps they arrived early to claim spots or, tempted by what their eyes imagine their pockets can afford, they'll make an offer to one of the women. I do not see any woman waiting to be picked. It might be too early for this. It is only 8 p.m. How interesting, I I think later, that there are men around the hotel for whom, like sex workers, this isn't merely a question of pleasure. For boats, the body is put to relentless work. I ask the taxi driver for his number. Responding to impulse, I want him to take me around the city at daylight. He has lived all his life in Benin. Men like him carry routes within themselves, as though with each shortcut he takes, he sketches a less officious map of the city. I want to assimilate, in the shortest time possible, the knowledge of all the routes he favors, the city mapped by his hand. He recites his number to me, confirming he could drive me at daylight. But the next day, and the day after that, I forget to call him. The image of a limping man flashed through my mind. He was Serge, the caretaker of the motel I stayed at in Abidjan. I could never tell when he came and went, if he came and went. One afternoon, I climbed down the stairs to dispose shredded paper, walking around the motel's small compound looking for a waste basket. Pardon, Monsieur, he said, and took the paper from my hand. Then he limped away. 
The manageress mistreated him. She scolded him at every opportunity. He's bad omen for my business, she said to me. He had come from Frekesedugu, a town in northern Cote d'Ivoire. Anyone from there was as clueless as sheep. Every night she would ask me for a recap of the day's events. I would sieve through my encounters, making an effort to speak well of her city, for which she had nothing but praise. One of those nights, she talked about Serge as a misfit she must dispose of. You know, she said, people come here for pleasure. Yes, I said, joking that I must be a bad customer since I didn't respond to the occasional taps on my door. Well, that's okay, she said. But you know that Serge once opened a room during the course of um, business. He apologized, but proceeded to sweep the floor. My girl and my customer, who were at the height of foreplay, had never seen anything like that. So stunned were they that they left him do the sweeping. Sometimes I would see Serge and the manageress having a chat in the compound. He would be washing a pile of clothes by hand with a large bowl beside him, and she would sit on a stool close to where he sat on the floor, resting his broken right foot. It would unnerve me when she laughed at something, he said, since I could not tell if her laughter was sincere or in mockery. Their conversation would be in the conspiratorial manner of gossiping friends. Hours later, she would begin berating him again. Early one morning, policemen came for search. Before they took him away, one of them took a photograph with a tiny Kodak. This is evidence that you were alive when we took you, he said. After we are done, no one will recognize you. On the morning of my departure, the manageress gave me the resulting photograph. They sent it to her, she alleged, as the only guardian of his the new. You must keep it, she said to me, because I don't want to keep seeing his face in my dreams. When I remembered Serge and his inexplicable arrest a few years later, I searched through my things from the photograph. By now I had a stack of portraits, progenies of many short-lived encounters on the road. Which face belonged to Serge? Only one portrait seemed to be his, but behind it I had written, a Nigerian in Libreville. In the moving bus in Addis Ababa, there was a man with a hood over his head. He was sitting by the window, I noticed him look at his reflection, and then he smiled. Every inch of his mouth seemed to show how deliberate the smile was and how purposeful. I was curious. Had nostalgic happiness erupted, as is sometimes the case from the past? Then I saw another boss speeding past beside ours, which I perceived the man was also watching. I could now guess another reason for his smile. Someone sitting by the window of the parallel bus, someone he loved, with whom he exchanged a conversational glance. Yet the improbability of this wasn't lost on me. When I turned away, I noticed my own reflection. My lips were pursed. The expression on my face could have been mistaken for an unhappy one, or the demeanor of a man who wasn't considering a smile. Again, I sought the hooded man's face. By now, he was looking towards me. I could claim that at the moment our eyes met, the look on his face became similar to mine. But faces aren't mirrors. Suppose we look long enough at others to discover their secret impulses. 
Could we understand ours in the process? Emmanuel's reading is an extract from his book A Stranger's Pose, an experimental text that is part travelogue, part memoir, and part photo essay. Beginning with an early memory of flying between Lusaka and Cairo, Egyptian sociologist Sarah Salem reflects on personal and political histories of air travel, borders, and surveillance. We move through airports, waiting rooms, and endure long layovers as she unravels the workings of coloniality and capital from the vantage point of the sky. This short reflection thinks about connection and disconnection in relation to Africa and how railways, highways, and flight paths are structured in ways that connect Africa to spaces outside of the continent, leaving the continent itself largely internally disconnected from the vantage point of the sky. This is in stark contrast to other forms of mobility and movement that connect Africa in expansive ways, both within the continent as well as to spaces outside of it. Here I'm thinking of movement along water paths and roads, by car, bus, taxi, and a whole variety of boats. I'm also thinking of forms of movement we might not traditionally think about, sonic, sensory, intellectual, emotive, and many more. This piece speaks to contemporary notions of connectivity, dominated by air travel and the forms of power and exclusion that they produce, and how this might come up against other ideas of world-making and indeed world-moving that have existed for a very long time. I draw both on my own childhood memories of flying, as well as past and present flight paths. Being part of an Egyptian-Dutch family living in Zambia meant that the movement increasingly became part of our lives. Looking back, I realized that I understood Zambia and Egypt to be part of one geographical imaginary. My childhood was full of connections between Cairo and Lusaka. I remember Cairo Road, a central road connecting various parts of Lusaka. And even more lucid than these fragmented memories was my realization of how similar the two cities were, despite the distance between them. I remember being struck after spending 16 years of my life in Zambia by how familiar Cairo felt not only because of my father or his family or because of stories I had heard or films I had watched, but because of how similar it was to Lusaka in terms of space. How to explain similar buildings, squares, roads, and statues. British colonialism was one answer, and another was decolonization, which produced street names that were similar in both cities, as well as familiar motifs of flags, national heroes, and prominent figures such as Kenneth Kaunda and Gamal Abdel Nasser. Flying between these spaces, leaving one home to visit another, created a material connection between these two spaces as well. Although this piece thinks about flying, it's important to note that until today, many people around the world cannot fly, largely because of the prohibitive prices on travel or because of the parceling off of borders and the lack of access this creates for those with the quote-unquote wrong passports. Yet flying remains crucial in creating connections between families spread across space even when tickets must be saved up for over long periods of time, and when large chunks of time animated by anxiety, frustration, and anger must be spent at embassies and consulates. The length of this piece cannot do justice to the complex subject of documentation, bordering, and surveillance. Movement and connections are fraught, political, and never accidental. In Skies That Bind, Sulin Lewis 
looks at air travel in relation to the spate of conferences in the 1950s that worked to create Afro-Asian solidarity. In this short piece, she asks how air travel, then a new mode of travel, might have shaped these conferences, arguing that the short hops of air travel in the 50s allowed participants to, quote, work their way through multiple pit stops, getting to know the territory in between and building personal relationships, end quote. Because air travel at that time was structured by short-haul flights, travelers were able to meet multiple people and make multiple visits on each flight, and this even brought about a new form of diplomacy. What's fascinating about this piece is the way it centers the infrastructure of flying and the particular ways in which short-haul flights were structured in order to tease out what this might mean for anti-colonial movements and anti-colonial movement making. I'm especially struck by how short-haul flights allowed for certain connections, and I wanted to take this type of a focus into my own piece and think about how the structure of flights produce particular ways of connecting or disconnecting as well as particular effective landscapes. Thinking about my childhood through flights immediately brings to life an entire geographical space. Zimbabwe, South Africa, Zambia, Nairobi, Egypt. This is because I immediately remember the ways in which my parents were constantly trying to find ways to get to Cairo from Lusaka and back. At one point, there were direct flights to Cairo from Zimbabwe, and we would take a very tiny plane from Zambia to Zimbabwe and then back and then on to Cairo. At another point, South Africa seemed to be the best option, and we would take the two-hour flight from Lusaka to Johannesburg and then on to Cairo. Now, when one of us travels back to Lusaka, flights are either through Addis Ababa or Dubai, depending on flight availability. For most of my life, it's been common to hear people talk about how difficult it is to travel directly from one African space to another, and how often the shortest and cheapest flights are those with transits in Europe. There always seem to be a layover or several involved, no matter how short the direct journey would have been. Flying indirectly opens up a whole range of destinations, but with this comes long travel times, expensive tickets, visa anxieties, endless waiting. I can't help but juxtapose this to hearing friends talk about being in New York City one morning, Paris that evening, or having breakfast in London and lunch in Berlin. There are journeys for which you never have to worry about how much time you lose along the way. When I began mapping out flight paths across Africa, I was shocked but not surprised to find out that there are only 15 airports that fly direct to more than 50 destinations. This is in stark contrast to Europe where there seem to be endless possibilities and where flight paths seem to exist for any and every journey that you could imagine. Partly this is a story of capital, which cities are able to mold themselves into hubs and to invest in airports that are attractive for long layovers. There's a whole range of costs that go into flying, costs I had never thought of before, parking at an airport, landing fees and many more. And to me, this is why the story of Dubai becoming such a central hub for flights between one African space and another is so important because in some ways it gestures towards the changing story of capital over the last few decades. But this is also a story of empire. In these maps, we see the coloniality of space in the parceling out of airspace. The question of who can move and how has always been a question of power. When we think of the railways and how they were built across Africa, we see that they were carefully constructed on the edges of the continent, 
built for one purpose, the extraction of resources. There's something about the materiality of maps, whether they're maps of flight spaces or railways, and the visual power of seeing them that underlines how power is etched into space. We see the railway lines strong around the edges and then fading into the center of the continent, and how this was linked to extractivism and colonial capitalism. But airspace is different. It's abstract, invisible. We know there are constantly planes in the sky, but we don't see them and usually don't hear them. And so flight paths remain somewhat hidden from view. We might know that there aren't many on top of the African continent simply because of our own experiences trying to fly from one place to another. Sarah's reading is drawn from a longer text titled Fractured Flights, published at racespacearchitecture.org. Thank you for listening. In our next episode, we trace the hauntings and afterlives of the larger histories of non-alignments, anti-colonial revolts, and pan-Africanism. You will hear from British-Sudanese novelist Jamal Magjou and Egyptian filmmaker Jihan El-Tari. The Archive of Forgetfulness project is co-curated by Huda Teok and Bongani Kona and is made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more details.